parable of the talents, or of the three servants. We're in Matthew. We're in Matthew. Soon to be in Lamentations for Lent, and then back to Matthew for Passion Week and Eastertide to finish up there in the appropriate place. So um, we're in Matthew 25, as we just read, 14 through 30. So if you have a Bible, yeah, open it up or keep it open. If not, we've got it on the screen here. Um, what we think of God determines every aspect of how we live, okay? What we think of God determines every aspect of how we live. It might seem like an obvious statement. This parable of the talents really drills down into that, and so I want to I wanna stay there this morning. Three points this morning. What is the master like? The misperception of the third servant. What is the master like? The misperception of the third servant. That's our first point, and I want to Start with that because it's really the focus of this parable. Why does Jesus focus on this wicked, faithless, lazy third servant? So what is the master like? The misperception of the third servant. Secondly, what is the master really like? What is the master really like? What does his interaction with the first two tell us about what he's actually like? And then thirdly, our stewardship matters to God. Okay. So first, what is the master like? The misperception of the third servant. A quick summary of the parable that Nathaniel read just a second ago. You have a master who's going away on a long journey. He owns everything, and he has three servants. And he, and he gives them, actually, we'll talk about this, huge amounts of responsibility, money, other stuff. He entrusts his property, not theirs, to them, and then he leaves, and it says on a long journey. He goes away for a long time. Easy to forget about him. Easy to start to think you're an owner. Easy to be irresponsible. Easy to think things about him that aren't true. He's been gone a long time. Other people are telling you about what, what, the way he is. Fears start to set in. Okay, we'll talk about all that. And then he comes back, believe it or not. And just as he tells them, true to his word, he returns after a long time. And he calls each of them to an accounting. And the first two do really well, and the third one does very poorly. And Jesus focuses on that third one. So we're going to look at that and stewardship uh, this morning. And we're really going to look at the root of what causes this third and wicked servant to act the way he does. Okay, what's at the root of, of the way that this guy lives? Uh, verse 26, you wicked, if you have the ESV, or evil, you wicked and slothful servant. You wicked and lazy or slothful servant, the master says. Um, the word means lazy, indolent, idle, um, but it's not connected. When we think of lazy, we might think of a beach bum just sitting, sipping, you know, margaritas on the beach. That's not really the lazy that I, I think that this parable has in mind that Jesus is telling about, us about here because of some other things that he says. Um, the word means lazy, but it's rooted in a behavior which shrinks back, which hesitates. Why? Why? I want to just tell you up front why. Why I think this is the, the case. Why is this servant... Lazy, why does he hide his talent? Why does he do nothing with it? He does nothing with it uh, because this lazy, unproductive, unimaginative man is the way he is and lives the way he does for one primary reason. Fear. Fear. One commentator, Martin Goldsmith, says that he, this man is, this, this servant, this third servant, he is paralyzed. He's paralyzed with fear. He doesn't fear God as we're commended to do in the Proverbs and elsewhere. He's afraid of him. And I want to talk about the distinction between the two. He's afraid of him. He misunderstands God. 
Okay, so what does he understand about God? What does he think God is like? Well, he thinks that he's a hard, if you look at verse 24, the way he responds, why did you act this way? Why did you bury your talent? Why did you do nothing with it? What's his response? I knew that you were a hard man. He uses the word hard in the ESV. In the Greek, in the original text, it's the word scleros, from which we get our word sclerosis, multiple sclerosis. So it does mean a hardening or hard. He's exacting. He's unfair. So you reap where you don't sow. You know, you, you don't even, this is perception of the third servant. You, you, you don't even sow seed in a certain place, and then you expect there to be a crop. You're totally unfair. You're hard. You're exacting. You're unfair. Um, someone who's prone to shout a lot and punish unduly, who raises a hand, maybe just for whatever reason, and you think because of the way they are that you kind of wince. You see the child or, or a woman or whatever or a dog wince because this person is raising his hand or her hand. Uh, that kind of person that's just angry and hard and unfair. Um, and that, uh, that's the sort of person that this, that, this, uh, master, that this servant has in mind of the master. The word means hard or cruel. So this is what he thinks of his master. Um, what's, thinking that, what's his response with the gifts that he's been given? How does he live his life in view of God? He says what? So I was afraid. I knew you were hard. I knew you were cruel. I knew you were exacting and unfair, reaping where you did not sow. So what was my response? I just took what you gave me, and I dug a hole in the ground, and I buried it just so I wouldn't lose it because I know you're a mean guy. And I did not want to lose it because I'm just afraid of you. Strict, harsh, cruel, merciless. Now, I just want to say, again, this is misperception. This is what the servant thinks, and it's even the way he describes it, what he knows. The third, ser third servant, verse 24, thinks that he knows this. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. He just doesn't realize that what he knows is false. It's misperception. Um, the tense suggests, quote, knowledge arrived at, a conclusion reached. Um, this is a conclusion this servant has come to about God, and the suggestion is he refuses to move from it despite any evidence to the contrary. He's decided, I know what you're like, okay? I formed my opinion somewhere in the past, and they've really informed the way that I live my life and use everything that has been given to me. And what action does this emotion produce? Knowing that you're hard and cruel, master. What is it, how, how does it look? He blames the master for his failure, for his behavior, for his waste and fear and stupidity. Basically, you can tell in his language, I knew you were this way, and so here's what I did. He's blaming, he's blaming the master. Um, Lord Alfred North Whitehead, famous British 20th century atheist intellectual. Is there any other kind than intellectual atheist? Um, maybe, but not many. Uh, when asked um, what he would say to God if he died and on the other side saw God and God said, why didn't you believe in me? His re famous response was insufficient evidence. In other words, your fault. Not mine. Um, this guy buries his talent. His understanding, knowing, making up his mind in the past that God is a certain way. You're hard, you're cruel, you're exacting, you're unfair. The, the reaction is he buries his talent. Um, John Wooden, coach of, uh, famous coach of UCLA, he won 10 NCAA national championships in 12 years. He had a bunch of 
he was just full of pithy sayings. One of them was, if you're not making mistakes, then you're not doing anything. I'm positive that a doer makes mistakes. And so this guy didn't see God that way. He didn't see there for being any room for making mistakes. Um, you're God who won't put up with that kind of thing. And so he didn't want to risk anything. Um, this kind of unhealthy fear produces hesitancy, reluctance in life, something that looks like laziness. Um, the word here, it's translated in some translations sloth or acedia in the Latin. Um, it's often based on, it's not just not wanting to do anything. It has deep roots in fear, a misperception of God. Um, if I mess up, God will punish me so it's safer not to take any risks. It's a fear that saps joy and creativity. It stymies, it depresses, versus a healthy fear of God that emancipates, produces wonder and awe, explosive creativity, and a willingness to risk. In this case and in this context, and often with us, the misperception of the master often manifests itself, I want to say, if we think of God in this way as exacting, as unfair, as hard. It often manifests itself in moralism. Okay, I do this. I make sure and obey these rules, and then I'm in the clear. I'm okay. And what that leads to is it, it saps creativity. It leads to us burying our talents um, because we have a fear of God as if he's going to slap us on the hand if we step over the line. That's the way we think God is. Um, and it leads to a judgmentalism and just to an anger and to a deep, a deep fear, an unhealthy fear of God. And Jesus is speaking really to, in this context to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who had kind of made salvation into obeying the law perfectly, as perfectly as we think we can. And that's what God requires. And I want to say, I mean, I've seen this recently in the lives of some of our friends. Um, and we see it really everywhere. It's in every false religion. And it, it destroys life and it hinders and it shackles and it holds us back and it saps our joy. Uh, and it makes us afraid. But it, it, um, it's just ugly. It, it, like I said, causes judgmentalism. And I'm better than you. Or if I fail, I'm worthless. There's a lot of bearing and moving away, um, just like this third servant uh, that's involved with this kind of mentality about God. It makes us extremely unproductive. And, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, they weren't unproductive people. Moralists can be some of the most productive people. But I'm not talking about Jesus in this parable of talents isn't talking about produce for yourself, doing things for yourself, building your own empire. That can be actually a sign of sloth or acedia, being very busy and consumed with you rather than being released to work for God and his kingdom, realizing that everything you have is a gift and being released to look outside of yourself and love and pour into and invest in others. This is the faithfulness that God's looking for, but it requires a different understanding of who God is. Like I said, the, this servant um, and, and servants who are like this, they might be very busy, frenetically so. But you can be frenetically busy and have that be a manifestation of an unhealthy fear of God, a flaw. Um, not really doing what needs done in the right way based on a misperception of God. Um, Winston Churchill called this kind of busyness and, and, uh, and work pawing at the ground, you know, just not doing any good, but just activity, activity, activity. I just want to ask you just a quick internal diagnosis, like, is any of this hitting home? 
Um, I picked this text in part because I felt that it spoke to me, but I also felt that God had this word in particular for certain people that are here this morning. I, don't, I didn't have anybody in mind necessarily, but I just felt like he was leading me here as I prayed. Um, so I just want to ask you, do you feel like your life is sort of pawing at the ground, to use Churchill's image? Or you're, you're working constantly, you're tired, you're fatigued? Not because you've been up all night with the baby. I'm not talking about that kind of fatigue. I'm talking about a soul fatigue, a dried out fatigue. Um, God has better for you than that. God has a rest for you even as you work. A rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we'll get there. So Churchill called it a pawing at the ground. Shakespeare's sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what your work in this life will eventually amount to, just a bearing everything that God's given you and producing nothing, even if you're very busy. Solomon's vanity or futility in Ecclesiastes. So what's, that's what the master's like according to the misperception of the third servant. But what's he really like? Point two. What's, what's this master really like? The parable actually tells us in his reaction to the first two servants. What's he really like? Verse 14, he gives gifts to these servants. Okay, he, All three of them, he entrusts valuable material and responsibility to them. A talent, he gives each of them more than a talent. Two, five, ten. Uh, a talent was an enormous. A talent was a it was a Greek. It was the largest Greek sum of. It was the largest Greek denomination. The largest sum of money at this time um, in the Greek monetary system. It was uh, worth about ten thousand pieces of daily wage, or called denarii. So basically, one talent was worth a lifetime of work, but for a day laborer, a lifetime. So you can see the enormous sum that this master entrusts to these, not co-workers, these servants. So he gives gifts. What is he like? He gives gifts to servants. Um, not only gives them gifts, but hugely generous gifts. Think of life and all that comes with it. Now think of the fact that this is all something that you and I haven't worked for. We, we don't deserve it. Now think of the Christian who's been given eternal life, security with God in this life, and in the one to come, something far, far greater. Think about how much we, everybody on the earth, but especially we who know God in Christ, have been given. Think of the enormous sum, the enormous trust. So God is extremely, uh, he gives gifts to his servants. He's extremely generous, which we'll get into in a little bit, uh, more in a little bit. He doesn't, think about the fact that this master, but certainly if you think about it with God, God doesn't need us. I mean, the Psalms say that he breathed out all the stars, the universes, uh, excuse me, the, the, uh, uh, the, the solar systems, the galaxies. He breathed out the universe. He breathed out the starry host. It's what his breath produces. The, as Chris was saying in his prayer, the earth is just this speck. It's this mode of dust dancing in a sunbeam. And what are we on that but smaller, much, much smaller speck? D does the God of the universe need us to invest, to work? Not at all. The fact that, therefore, he allows us to do that means that his giving us things is an act of love. He's not worrying about whether these things are going to get done. He's including us in his plan. And that's an, the fact that we're given things is an act of his love and his generosity. It's not of his hardness. He's generous, verse 21. He's generous in his praise of his servants. In this culture, the way that he speaks to his servants, this verse 2, is not, this kind of language and praise isn't, isn't expected. It's, it's not required. He's extremely generous. Well done, good and faithful servant. Bruner, 
Frederick Bruner, a commentator, says, human beings have been created to be goal and praise oriented. We live for this, to be told by our maker and redeemer, great job, well done, faithful person. Let me give you a bunch more. You've been faithful in, in a little. Um, we were created for this praise, and our lives, all of our lives are typically spent seeking validation from other things. And it never satisfies because it's not big enough and it's not what we were made for. We were made to seek and to receive the validation of this master. And he gives it to his faithful. Um, it's not mercenary, mercenary to seek God's praise and this, and this praise from him, well done, good and faithful servant, to live in, for that and in light of that. It's not mercenary. Uh, mercenary is, is working for an improper reward as C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, but this is actually right. Like a father, you know, or a, a, little, a little boy that's looking to hit a baseball and he finally makes contact and his dad's behind the fence and he looks and he says, hey, after the game, dad, did you see that? And he wants his father's praise. That's not perverse. That's right. That's what, the father's praise is what a son, it's the right reward for a son. Um, and so this is what we were made for. And if you're restless and if you are fatigued and weary, and if you feel like you're running on fumes, and if you feel like you're never satisfied, I can almost assure you that at some level, it roots into this. The fact that you were made to receive the Father's praise, the, the one who made you and knit you together and knows you and loves you with an infinite love expressed through Christ, and you're just seeking after lesser love. They're never going to satisfy. But his does. Um, you will never live right until you live to hear your father's praise. Um, Bruner also says, he says, in, these words enter into the joy of your master. That's what the master says to the good servant. These words um, by the master point to the wedding feast of the lamb in Revelation, which is what we're all, as believers, those who trust in Christ, looking toward. It, he says it's going to be an honors banquet to outdo all honors banquets. So God is extremely generous, this master, in his praise. Um, he's interested. He wants to know, what have you done with everything I've given you? He wants to know. He's interested in his, these tiny little servants that are, you, know, you think about God and us, and we should be insignificant, but we're not. We're very significant. He, he cares about everything we do. He's interested. He's fair. If you look at how he gives five talents to one and two to the other, um, sorry, he gives five, two, and one. I, I got it. I, I messed it up last time. I think I said two, five, and ten. But he gives five to one, two to another, and one to the last. Um, he gives them the exact same praise. Even though the one that's given five is given more, he makes more than the guy that's given two and makes two back. He gives the exact same line of praise to both of them. So this master, he's not, he's fair. He's not concerned about um, who did better. He's concerned about what did you do with what I've given you? What did you do with what I've given you? Um, and he's generous, like I've said before. He gives the ones who are faithful much more. Recall how much these talents were. And then he, he, Jesus just calls these a little. He says, you were faithful with a little. Two talents, five talents, a ton of resource. And he calls that a little. And he says, because you were faithful in a I'm going to give you much, here's much more. And that's the way our God is. He's generous. And he cares, and he's watching, he's interested. 
And um, he, with those who do, how can we be faithful with a God like this? It's just amazing that he involves us in his plan, but if we are faithful, and we'll talk much more about that, trusting in him, understanding what he's really like, he will give us in this life and in the life to come so much more. Just calling what he gives us now just tiny by comparison. And if we're not looking to that in that way, we're going to live wrong. We're going to live wrong. Um, you know, the idea that this, what we're given in this life is tiny, it's a little compared to the masses uh, of responsibility and possessions and privilege and reward and freedom that we're going to receive in the life to come if we've trusted in Christ. Um, Francis Chan, who I love, I don't read or, or, or watch a lot of him, but everything I hear by him is just spot on. I love his passion for the Lord, and he's a gifted teacher. And he, you might have seen this. I didn't see it until this week, but he has um, one illustration where it's just a big rope, and he, he has it all the way across the stage, and it goes off the stage, and it's 50 feet long or something. And he has, it's just a regular colored rope, and he has a little piece of red tape on the end of it, about this big. And he says, man, the crazy thing is, People look at the way I'm living and they think, you're crazy. Why are you giving everything away and plowing your life into God and other people and laying your life down? And you're nuts. He's like, you're nuts. Our lives, whether we've trusted in Christ or not, are eternal. We're going to be with God forever in the new heavens and new earth or apart from him, you know, paying for the things that we've done instead of hiding in Christ. So either way, we're eternal creatures. We're going to live forever. And this rope is just a tiny picture of that. He says, you're living for this red bit. So you're like, okay, I'm here on the red bit. I'm, I'm, I'm working for 60 years so I can get to here for 10 years. And then the rest of the rope just continues on and on and on. He's like, you're the crazy one, man. You know? So living this little red tape bit in light of the massive thing that's coming. Um, Bruner, again, says, there will be a call up a corporate ladder. The reward of fulfilled responsibility is greater responsibility, a great promotion that will be eternal. We tend to evaluate people by their work, but we will learn at the judgment who the people with the really responsible positions have been. Such positions often have nothing to do with titles, quantities, or appearances. For example, a parent who cares faithfully for a child, or a child who cares faithfully for an elderly parent, in complete obscurity and seeming insignificance, will be given accolades at the judgment. So what is the master really like? The parable tells us some, we've looked at, but also the teller of the parable shows us what the master is really like. We've we've gone through John in a past series, and do you remember the way John finishes his his prologue, his first 18 verses in the book? In in John 1.18, he says that none of us have ever seen God, but the only God who's at the Father's right hand, Jesus, he shows us what God is like. John tells us if we want to know what God is like, what the Father, what the Master is really like, we have a perfect picture, and his name is Jesus Christ. Um, you know, and this lie that God is cruel and he's holding out on you, and there are other things in life that are better but he doesn't want you to get to, and he's a spoils for it, um, is, is, it's not just a lie that we buy into. It's not just a lie that this guy, this third servant bought into. It's a lie that Satan has been spinning from the beginning. It's, it's the lie that he gave to our first parents. The serpent in the garden in Genesis 3 
he basically just said, like, look, I know God's given you all this stuff, but really, has he really? I mean, that, that thing that he said you couldn't do, I think that's the best thing. That's really where life is, and he doesn't want that for you. And so it's the same lie that's spun to us in a variety of different ways, and, and I've bitten on it, on the hook, and we all have. Um, why do we believe this lie? What are the effects of our buying uh, into this lie in our lives? Again, I would submit to you joylessness, selfishness, spending all of our resources on us, like acting like we're owners instead of stewards, and then he's acting like he's not coming again when he is, acting like he's not generous and fair and more than fair when he is, um, a hatred of God because we think he's cruel, really. Even if we're saying we love him, really our hearts aren't full of love for him. Um, and a love of almost anything else that's, that's, that comes our way instead of him. Um, why, would we believe, why would we trust and love and pursue and live for a God that we think is hard and cruel? He's exacting. But look at what Jesus shows us about how God really is. A God who left everything, all the treasure of heaven, the perfect love of the Father, and came down, still being loved by the Father, but became human for us, poor, rejected, despised, and used our sin and evil to allow himself to choreograph things in such a way that he was nailed to a cross, and through all that torture, experienced something far worse that, than we can imagine, and that we could even see on the cross were we there. Worse than the, the cat and nine tails pulling out chunks of flesh from his back, Worse than being smacked on the face with a blindfold on. Worse than being shamed and stripped naked. There was no loincloth on the cross. Worse than being rejected by the people that you've created. Worse than dying of asphyxiation on the cross and trying to pull yourself up on spikes that are through your wrists. Worse than all of that by far. Becoming sin for us. Being rejected by the Father for us. Having the wrath of God against all the sins of those who would trust in Christ poured out into him and onto him. Suffering eternal hell for everybody who would look to him by faith. He who knew no sin. I, I'm well familiar with the taste of sin, my friends. I know what it's like. But Jesus is not. And when he tasted that, think of the shock. I can't even imagine that it was to his system. The fact that he did this so that we could be reconciled to God and not have to pay that, and that he was rent asunder so we could be made whole, this is what the scriptures tell us, what John tells us. This is what God is like. This is the heart of the Father for you the farthest thing from exacting or unfair or hard or cruel. The farthest thing. I, uh, I had a dream this week that was uncharacteristic. It was more just like a saying that fixed, fixated in my mind and wouldn't go away. And I say it was uncharacteristic because um, normally my dreams are fleeting and I'll just remember some images here and there, and then by five minutes later, they're gone. They just eviscerate once I have my coffee in my hand. Um, but it was a clear word that was repeated over and over, such that I still remember it. And it was just a simple phrase, and it is, all that I have is yours. And it was so clearly the Lord speaking that to me. I didn't know why. I, I, had a, I have a sense still that it's for me, but that it's for us. Um, all that I have is yours. And I, the only thing I can trace it back to, and what I trace it back to immediately, 
And I just, I just sort of rested in it and have been resting in it all week. But, uh, you know, he is the God who says to me and to you, all that I have is yours. And what, what I can trace that back to is Luke 15, the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Um, and the fact that there are two sons, one of them goes and denies his father and just squanders everything he's been given and is welcomed back with open arms by the father. And the other one is, um, he's there and he's been faithful, but he's, he's, been, he's looked at God the father as a harsh, cruel sort of master rather than father. And what does the father say to him? He says, man, this party, it's for you anytime. You're my son. I can't love you anymore. And what does he say? All he says to the older son who's, who's living a joyless life of, of withholding and being faithful only, only to sort of to get the reward that's due him and really hating his father, the father says to him, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. In other words, you can't attain to sonship by what you do. It's not performance-based. It's not. You're a son or a daughter based on who you were born to. And what Christ brings us into is sonship. When we trust in him and what he's done for us, we are made sons and daughters. That's what the people who are up here, standing up here, are professing to, fundamentally, before anything else. They're saying, I'm coming into this body because of what someone else has done for me through no good of my own. Jesus laid his life down, and as I believe on him, he makes me irrevocably part of the family of God, a son or a daughter. And all that God has is Christ, and all that Christ has is yours if you trust in him. Friend, if you're living a life of scratching and clawing, and there's not a lot of joy, and there's not a lot of peace, I just want to say that the fear and the frenetic nature and the moving away and bearing whatever it is that God has given you um, could very well be, and probably is to some degree, a result of the fact that you have not grasped that the face and the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ reveal to us the heart of the Father. That is, there is no discrepancy between what Jesus is like and what he has done for you and his deep, eternity-changing love for you and how the Father feels about you and wants you and yearns for you and wants to draw you near to him. And if you have not yet gotten to the place where you cease to labor, to try to clean yourself up for God, and just come to say, I'm a sinner, you died a sinner's death for me, sweet Jesus. You bring me all the way to the lap of the Father and make me his and him mine. If you haven't gotten to that place, I, I just want to plead with you this morning to just come and cast your cares on the Lord and, and trust in him because he loves you. This is the heart of God for you, expressed in his dear son Christ. Um, reality is if we don't trust in Christ, friends, there's this last bit in verse 30 um, that, uh, that Christ mentions in his parable that's, that's hard. He casts the servant out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, just to, not as much as I want to, but man, just a quick sort of touching on these things. 
the word outer. So every, if, we, if we don't come to God in his big heart, the master, through the person of Christ, and we try to do this on our own, thinking that this is what God requires, things of me, rather than faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone, we will be cast outer, into outer, that whatever outer is, as, as opposed to inner. Inner is, inner is on a cold, snowy, it's hard to imagine here, you know, wind howling, bone chilling day, uh, looking into a home with family and friends and warmth and a glow and a fire in the hearth crackling and, and food on the stove um, and festivity and joy and celebration and real life. That is everything that inner is and more. And that is the feast that we're heading to and more if we're in Christ. But outer is everything that that is not and more. It's all the horrible things that are associated with not being part of what's going on inside. It's being cast out. Not only to outer, but into outer darkness. Have you ever been in a place that is utterly, utterly dark where you can't see your hand in front of your face? Miserable. Can you imagine an eternity in a place that is no, you're not just excluded from everything good. You're in total darkness. The heart wrenches. The mind stops and halts at a thought like that. But that is the reality that awaits for those who do not come to Christ and who therefore see God as hard and exacting and unfair. Um, a place not only of outer darkness, but of weeping, um, sadness, okay? Total sadness, constant weeping, but here's the thing that breaks my heart. No hope. We can be sad at the prospect of that now, and there is a, there is a place for us to go. There is hope. It is called Jesus. It is called everything that the Father has done, all the preparations he's made, finished his work for you to get to him, offered freely in Christ. That is our hope. There is a place, the other side of death, for those who haven't trusted in Christ, where there is weeping with no hope. Think about that. You're so sad at your state, and there's never any hope for eternity of a position change. It blows my mind and heart. But that's the reality that Christ talks about. And finally, of gnashing of teeth. An anger, not a repentance over sin, because there isn't that anymore in hell, but a regret. Ah, I wish I had, but without a desire to have changed. Just a gnawing and a churning forever, knowing I could have, but I didn't, and now I can't, and I don't want to because I hate God, and I hate myself, and I hate other people, and you're just constantly moving out and burying what you've been given, and it's just builds and builds forever. This is the place that Christ says the wicked servant goes to, who thinks wrongly, wrongly of God, who doesn't look at God as revealed in Christ. He says, no, okay, Jesus doesn't truly reveal Christ. There are other ways. No. And God says, and Jesus is the one telling the parable and showing us, no, the heart of God for you is me, who I am, what I've come to do. Come to me. Come to me. Christ experienced all this for us. This is the heart of God for us. This is what the master is. He experienced the, ulti the ultimate insider, the son of God, loved by God fully, all privy to all the privileges of heaven, cast out, crucified outside of the city. Not only cast outside of God's love, but with the wrath of God the Father poured out on him for us, okay, in our place. Total, the light of the world stepped down and was completely rejected and immersed in utter darkness for us. A man of sorrows, so full of weeping, and on that cross, 
sadness and a heaviness and a despair in becoming sin that I don't even, I'll never be able to understand fully. Um, but not a gnashing of teeth, because what he did, he did for the joy set before him with a great hope of renewal, the renewal of all things. Um, to you who stand outside, who may think of God as cruel and hard, I want to say to you, he's not so. This is a lie from the enemy. It always has been, but it won't always be. The truth of God is shown to us in Jesus, his dear son. God has made way for you to come to him in Christ. The question is, will you come? I knew thee, the wicked servant says. No. Quote, he knows him not who thinks him hard. God is love. From the German Bible. Christ demonstrates the love of God with invincible proof. You know, our final point was our stewardship matters to God, but for the sake of time, sadly, I'm, uh, I'm going to skip it, but I am just going to tell you a short story, okay? And that's it. Our stewardship matters so much to God. I hope you can glean that from this parable, but it only comes from a heart of joy. Enter into the joy of your master that trusts that God is the way he is through Christ whom he's provided. Christ is God. He is our way to God. He is the heart of God. And as we receive this, there's a joy and a freedom and an emancipation that comes that pushes out that unhealthy anxiety and being afraid of God and settles in a deep fear, love for, and awe of God that is a joy that just permeates everything we do. Everything we do. Um, we don't work with that kind of joy in order to measure up. We work with that kind of joy because we know that we already measure up because of Christ, because we stand fulfilled and completed in him. That's the only way that kind of productivity for God and for the people he's placed around us comes about. The story I want to close with is just a story. It's, of course, from Lord of the Rings because every other story I tell is. Um, sorry, spoiler alert for the guys that are reading. Uh, we, we have a reading group of about eight guys right now that are reading uh, in 13 months the Lord of the Rings together, and we're on the journey. Uh, just made it to Bree last night. Yeah, yeah. Um, but some of these guys haven't finished it yet, and some of you haven't, but so I'll I'll keep the details fair, but just two characters. Uh, one of them is Saruman, who was a great wizard, but ended up being hard and cruel and uncaring and power-hungry. And he had a, he had a servant um, that ended up coming over to him called Grima Wormtongue. What a character. And Grima saw Saruman after it was too late for what he was, but he was trapped by that point by this cruel master. And he ended up giving things away that weren't his to give away, you know, throwing the glass eye out, out of the window, and, um, and then eventually he ends up, sorry, he ends up being very bad news, okay, I'll, go, I'll stop there, for Saruman. He ends up being a thorn in the Saruman's side because he hates Saruman, and because Saruman is indeed someone worthy of hate. He's harsh and he's cruel. He's hard. So think about that kind of service based, rooted in fear, servile fear, versus the service that Aragorn, Strider, as some of you who are just along in the journey might know him, he's a ranger from the north, but his real name is Aragorn, as you'll come to see, son of Arathorn, um, son of the kings of Westerness um, from the west. And he is the true king. He is the loving king and the courageous king. And there's a point near the end where his servants, understanding how loving and worthy he is and capacious in all that he gives and willing to lay his life down for them, he is. Follow him through a mountain of death. 
what is their response? Grima, servile fear, he ends up being the ruin of his master. These warriors who are following Aragorn, their master, they follow him even into death itself. Why? Because he's cracking the whip? No. Because he's a worthy king who has shown, who has shown that he is willing to lay his life down for them. And I just want to say, those are the, I think, two apropos pictures of, of, of the way that, the two ways that we could go and the two ways that we see these servants going in this parable. Um, one is motivated, motivated by a misperception of God. The other is motivated by the true picture that's given to us, what? In his, in his son, Jesus Christ. So um, in everything that we have been given, the massive amount we've been given, it's called a tiny thing. Let us remember this and invest wisely and steward wisely, knowing that we will be called to account, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who is the true king, who has passed through the mountain of death, and who calls us to follow him, because we have been given everything, and we have nothing now to lose. So, and if you haven't done that um, at all, I invite you this morning to do that um, for the first time. So let me, let me pray for us and then serve communion. Father, I thank you for the fact that the, what the third servant thought of you was false. It wasn't true. Um, and what the first two servants thought of you produced this massive productivity, creativity, because it was right. It was based on the fact that you're expansive, that you hold all pleasures in your right hand forevermore, that you are the God and the source of all joy, and that you are, you are our soul's desire, and that you have come for us to make a way to yourself that we could never make. So I pray that you would just expunge religion, false religion, moralism, rule following, Lord, and that you would bring in a true picture of Jesus Christ this morning to our hearts, that we would set our hearts on him knowing that he's done everything necessary for us to know what you really like, for us to bring, um, for, to bring us to you. I pray that we would come now, we who have trusted in Christ or who trust in Christ for the first time, and just feed on, feed on him together by faith, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.